Dictators and despots always think they can silence freedom fighters by putting them in prison. But history shows that often backfires. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote one of his most famous works, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, while he was imprisoned. While he was behind bars, Malcolm X educated himself, embraced the nation of Islam, and set himself on a course to become a world leader. The Apostle Paul was imprisoned three times, but declared the word of God is not bound. Nehru, Vaclav Havel, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Aung San Suu Kyi, they all became more powerful after spending years in jail as political prisoners. The South African authorities thought imprisoning Mandela and his colleagues and dehumanizing them would end their freedom struggle. They were wrong. Prison strengthened Mandela and his colleagues. If anything, it hardened his commitment. And that uh, we wanted to clear everybody from the fear of the white man which paralyzed them. The fear of his prison, his courts, his prison, and his police, his army. We want people to know that they can actually challenge injustice and go to jail and still come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also wanted uh, to instill a spirit of resistance in our people mm-hmm. and thirdly to forge unity. For Mandela, prison was like a crucible that melted away impurities. The South African regime thought that time would make people forget Mandela. They thought that hard time would break him. The South African regime took everything away from him. But they had also given him the very thing he needed to triumph over apartheid. That thing was time. At first, life on Robben Island, South Africa's most notorious prison, was physically demanding. The prisoners did hard labor, crushing stones or working at the lime quarry. They wanted to break our spirits. So what we did was to sing freedom songs as we were working. And everybody was inspired, you know, went through uh, the work, you know, with high morale. And then, of course, dancing to the music as we were working, you know. Then the authorities realized that, no, these chaps you see are too militant. They're in high spirits. And they say, no singing uh, as you're working. So you really felt the toughness of the work. That vision of Mandela singing and dancing with a pick in the bright sun at the top of the lime quarry is one that has always stayed with me. Mandela pushed back at almost every aspect of his imprisonment, not just the ban on singing. But no matter how tough the work was, Mandela found ways to keep his mind busy and his spirits up during his years on the island. He was always disciplined. Years after I finished working on the book, I saw the diaries he kept in prison that noted how many sit-ups and push-ups he did each day and how many minutes he spent on each. He noted in exact detail what he read and wrote each day. Over time, by organizing his colleagues and charming his own warders, Mandela managed to improve conditions on the island. Solidarity was something very important in prison. 
The authorities began to vary where the prisoners worked. And after that, then they changed us from the quarry and uh, went out to the seaside to pull seaweed. But it was much more interesting because uh, life there, um, we could see a lot of things happening. You could see ships uh, coming into Cape Town and coming out and uh, fishing boats around. And uh, you see the police driving away fishing boats where they were fishing in seasons, uh, in areas which were preserved, and also fishing out of season. Sometimes I know chaps discovered a bottle of wine. He could always find something to marvel at. One of the things I always marveled at was that even in the grimmest situations, Mandela found something to be curious about, to laugh at, or learn from. More than any person I've ever known, he could simultaneously live in the moment, in the past, and the future. I know it sounds ridiculous to say, but there was a lighter side to Robben Island. And did you feel when you were doing, when you were entertaining yourselves or relax? Did you ever relax? I mean, did it on the island? I mean, it seems like you were always. Um... No, well, uh, there were times. I mean, I used to play games. He played chess and checkers. His play was thoughtful, methodical, wearing down his opponents through attrition. His deliberate style would confound other players who would sometimes upend the board in frustration when Mandela finally made his move. He would sometimes crow in victory. He liked to needle and tease his comrades. I know. I experienced it. There were other games, too. I played uh, tennis, tennicoid, and volleyball. And then I took part also in indoor games. In the later years, the authorities began to show movies. They used bedsheets as screens. This was at a time when even few white South Africans went to the movies. For the prisoners, seeing any movie, even on a sheet, was a big deal. Do you um, remember any of the movies that they showed you on Robben Island? And when did movies start? The documentaries that I saw where the Harlem dancers, for example. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was uh, the picture, The King and I, Yul Brenner. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was, uh, what was the heading? Where he played uh, the uh, role of a pharaoh against uh, the uh, Israels. The Ten Commandments, maybe? Mandela may have downplayed it, but he loved movies. And he loved Hollywood stars. In our interviews, he recounted every moment of his encounters with famous people, singers, songwriters, performers, actors. I remember one morning getting in early to his office, and he was so excited to tell me that he had met Elizabeth Taylor the night before. He told me how impressive she was and warm. And then he said, and I once watched her on a bedsheet on Robben Island. And, um... I did want the old pictures, like Tyrone Power, mm-hmm. uh, Cesar Romero, Don Amiche, Carmen Miranda, but uh, they were no longer there because uh, these were the pictures uh, I saw as a young man. Mm-hmm. The Mark of Zorro. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is the other chap who came uh, from your 
seit Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. <laughs> and uh, I used to like uh, those pictures, you know. I think he meant the 1965 movie The Conqueror, starring John Wayne as Genghis Khan. It was panned, by the way. But I can see his beaming smile in the darkness as he watched the images flickering on the bedsheet. Mandela also liked to sing. It was another way to keep himself entertained. We sang uh, all sorts of songs. There were carols, uh, Christmas carols. But I sang a wide variety of songs, you know, composers, African composers, white composers. That's what happened. Did you have solos? Yes, I used to sing uh, Mary Argyle. You used to sing? Mary of Argyle. It's a well-known British song, you know. Uh, Mary Argyle is A-R-G-Y-L-E. And um, I used to sing those songs and... African songs in vernacular. But uh, it's just a question of entertaining ourselves. There was nothing, but there were some fellows, you know, who were good singers. I was one of them, not one of them, but I, I enjoyed singing. I remember standing next to him while he sang Nkosi Sikaleli, Africa. He sang firmly, and he knew all the verses. Mandela sometimes used to joke that Robin Island was like a spa. Lots of physical exercise outdoors, a Spartan diet, early to bed, early to rise. And he had his own personal trainer, himself. Mandela was always keen to stay in shape. When it came to fitness, he was way ahead of his time. He used to take early morning jogs from Orlando Township in the 1950s. The 1950s? That's before we even had the word jogging. Ah, very fit, yeah. And in prison, I felt very fit indeed. So I used to train in prison from Monday to Thursday, mm -hmm. just as I did outside. Mm -hmm. yes. And uh, I was happy, you know, the influence I had in prison because uh, everybody started uh, taking up exercises, mm -hmm. at least in our section. Mm -hmm. And especially my generation, who were not used to exercises, mm -hmm. There was a spirit of healthy competition, you know? Mm -hmm. If so-and-so can do so-and-so, why can't I? And it was a very healthy spirit where everybody was doing exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think they've benefited from that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Benefited from that. He was incredibly disciplined. Skipping and uh, then other exercises, stomach exercises. Skipping rope. Pressing press-ups and running around. Did you do those same exercises on Robben Island? Yes, I, before I went out. How many minutes? Minutes. I normally talk about an hour. An hour. So mm. d t describe the routine, your exercise routine. Well, uh, running, station running, mm -hmm. and uh, abdominal exercises. Sit-ups? Yes, all that. And, uh, well, generally... Uh, trying to exercise every part of the body, bending backwards, forwards, fully stretched, and so on. And press-ups. I could do press-ups on my fingertips. fingers, fingertips. That day, we were sitting in Mandela's ANC office in downtown Johannesburg. And then he suddenly stood up, 
walked over to the center of the room, got down on his hands and knees, and then slowly did two fingertip push-ups. How many? I don't know if I can still try. Let me just see if I can. Let me just try. I was fit at the time. Not as I am now, you know? You're fit now. Now, I don't think I can. I don't think I can do, I do two. You see? Oh, my fingertips. That's the sound of him getting on the floor to do the two fingertip push-ups. And you did more than a hundred of those? No, 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 just hundred. A hundred. That was always uh, the maximum. That's a lot. <laughs> I remember Barbara Masakela, his chief of staff, saying to me once that Mandela was very proud of his slim figure. Mandela also kept his mind in shape. He had strong memories of the great debates he had with his colleagues while working on Robben Island. His discussions with his comrades sounded like college seminars, but with picks and shovels. While they were outside working, they had discussions on everything from whether a violent revolution was possible to whether the tiger was indigenous to Africa. Now we're arguing whether there is a tiger in Africa, or whether all that we heard was a leopard. By the way, the answer to the argument about the tiger and the leopard is that the leopard is native to Africa, but the tiger isn't. The tiger is native to Asia, not Africa. There's a reason they used to call Robben Island the university. Mandela and the other ANC guys read everything they could get their hands on. They had debates, long conversations, and wrote papers for each other. By the late 1970s, they could study as much as they wanted. Mandela was always a diligent student. He was always trying to better himself. But getting approval to learn had two purposes, to actually study and to plan. We had been given permission to study. Was itself a cover? Because we'd sit down and discuss uh, politics. And when the water comes to listen, then you just switch over and you discuss your studies for which you have been given permission. So that went on throughout the time we were in prison. We were conducting political classes and then writing letters to the other sections on a particular topic. Other sections meant the common law prisoners in a different part of the island. That's right, yes. Well, there came a time when we were not going out to work at all. And then we conducted uh, uh, lectures, Mm -hmm. study classes, Mm -hmm. uh, political classes. And again, you send out the guys that were discussing our studies, Mm -hmm. academic studies. They used their study time to make sure the movement stayed alive back on the mainland. Mandela wrote material they hoped to smuggle out. At one time, I had a lecture which I had written, and I had to send it, it had to be sent to the other side. And uh, whilst I was reading it to others, the water came and said, Yes, what is this? So I said, no, that is my study. She said, but uh, this thing uh, looks like uh, communism. Uh, because anything you say that did not deal with the National Party was communism. <laughs> I said, well, but this looks like communism. I said, no, it's not. But uh, I am, uh, what do you call, I am studying uh, politics, political science. And that's political science. All right. And they left. Oh, Christ. I felt really relieved. 
Mandela was intent on getting political material to the common law prisoners. He and his fellow political prisoners were focused on educating the other prisoners on the island. Education begins at home. One of the enduring debates on the island was one that sounds odd to us today. Were the ANC and the Communist Party one and the same? It was an internal debate that divided many of the ANC members. And uh, many of our people now wanted to convey the perception that there was no difference between the Marxists, the Communist Party, and the ANC. And one of the problems we had to fight was this. To say the difference between the two is very vast. The Communist Party is a party. We are a broad national movement. And with the members of the Communist Party as members of the ANC, but uh, the two organizations are totally different. The Venn diagram overlap between the Communist Party and the ANC was large. They were both non-racial. They were both against apartheid and colonialism. They were both against the white industrialists that controlled the South African economy and abused black workers. Almost all of the Ravonia trialists had been members of the Communist Party. But was Mandela? Mandela always denied it. But his denials weren't all that persuasive. There was also an allegation. Uh, they wanted to put me in a list of people who were classified as communists. And they said I had attended a meeting of the Communist Party, a conference of the Communist Party in 1960. Then I said, give me the names of your witnesses. Give me proof that I was there. They found it very difficult because it was not true. Well, just because one allegation isn't true doesn't mean the overarching one, that Mandela was a communist, is not true. There's been a lot of recent scholarship that is pretty persuasive about Mandela being a member of the party. I believe Mandela was a member of the party, but I think Mandela was a member of the party because he believed it was the best way to achieve his great goal, freedom for his people. He saw that the freedom struggle would be stronger if the ANC and the Communist Party worked together. A lot of critics believe Mandela was co-opted by the Communist Party. I don't think Mandela was ever co-opted by anyone. This may seem like a remote academic exercise, who cares whether Mandela was a member of the Communist Party? But it was incredibly important at the time, and it speaks to who he was. First of all, whether he was a member of the party was a front and center issue from the end of World War II to the fall of the Berlin Wall just before Mandela was released. It was the reason the CIA was tracking him, why he was branded as a terrorist, and why he hid his affiliation with the party for 40 years. But his approach to it is important because it shows once again that Mandela was not an ideologue, that communism for him was a tactic, not a principle. And the fact that he wouldn't cop to it four decades later just confirms that. Because he's still worried that it might interfere with his presidential campaign. Ultimately, for Mandela, prison was a kind of laboratory for the future. In some ways, it was a microcosm of the country as a whole. The majority of unempowered blacks and a small minority of white prison officials. 
his whole approach was a kind of experiment to see what might work, what types of resistance, and what types of cooperation. Before going to prison, Mandela hadn't known many Afrikaners. There weren't many Afrikaners in the Transkei where he grew up, and Johannesburg was dominated by English-speaking whites, not Afrikaners. Mandela looked at his Afrikaner guards in a different way than most other prisoners. He understood that while the guards were symbols of a repressive regime, they were also just men who could be helpful. I remember asking him whether he regarded warders as representatives of the apartheid state or individuals who could help him. He gave me an odd look and a half-smile and said, Why not both? By the way, why not both was his answer to many of my questions. For him, it was always and and both, rather than either or. He regarded these poorly educated working-class Afrikaner guards as victims of an oppressive policy that also repressed them. He realized that if he could win over his guards in prison, he might be able to win over whites when he got out of prison. He understood that he had to put himself in their boots. So, he set out to learn the language of the oppressor, literally. When I was in prison, I started just studying Afrikaans in 1963. And the reason why you wanted to study Afrikaans was what? Well, it's obvious, because as a public figure, you do want to know the two main languages, official languages of the country. And uh, Afrikaans is an important uh, language spoken by the majority of uh, the white population in the country and by the majority of the colored people. And it's a disadvantage not to know it. Because when you spoke, speak language, uh, English, you, well, many people understand you, including Afrikaners. But when you speak Afrikaans, you know, you get go straight to their hearts. So it's important to know, to know the language, especially in prison, it was very important. Going straight to their hearts. That's part of Mandela's genius as a politician. He understood that you had to win hearts and minds. Here's a man who has been sentenced to life in prison, who, for nearly 30 years, put in the work to prepare himself for when he got out. He knew that when he eventually got out, and he always believed that he would get out, that he had to be prepared to win over the white minority that would be terrified of a black president. He was already fluent in Kosa and English. But if he wanted to lead South Africa, he had to be ready to govern in one of its official languages. That is how, he said, you go straight to their hearts. In his final years in prison at Victor Verstair, he had his own warder. Mandela would speak to him in Afrikaans, and the warder would speak to Mandela in English. In fact, when he came out of prison, Mandela even campaigned for Afrikaans to remain one of South Africa's national languages, to the chagrin of many in the ANC. For decades, he had argued not for a black majority South Africa, but a non-racial South Africa where everyone was treated equally. To achieve that, he believed he had to make white South Africans feel the new democratic South Africa was theirs too. Mandela used his own kind of charm offensive on his guards. He used to cook stew with crayfish and shared it with them. But that's not all he shared with them. Did the warders share the stew? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, they, they enjoyed it. 
When he actually started running for president, he made sure to have smiling photo ops with his former guards. In prison, though, the warders became his focus group, a place where he could test his political ideas and see if he could change minds. And how did they start participating? They, they listened and then they started giving their opinions also? Well, they asked us questions. As far as I was concerned, I never started a political discussion with any order. I listened to them. You are more effective if you are responding to a person who wants to make inquiries. When uh, the information is volunteered uh, gratuitously, some people resent that mm -hmm. and you are not effective. It's better to keep your distance. But when somebody asks, what exactly do you want? Because that's how they normally ask. Just tell me, what do you want? And then uh, you explain. How do you have enough food and uh, you worry about these things? Why create such a difficulties and miseries for country, attacking innocent people, murdering them. And then you have a chance of explaining and saying, no, you don't know your own history. When you were oppressed by the English, you did exactly as we did. And uh, that is the lesson of history. And you explain it. Many people understand amongst them. In prison, Mandela studied Afrikaans' history, which was another way to reach their minds and hearts. He saw a parallel between the Afrikaners who fought against the British in the Anglo-Boer War and black revolutionaries who were fighting against the Afrikaner. They could understand that. He would use this same example later with the South African state president. He even knew the names of specific battles and generals of the Anglo-Boer War. If Mandela could persuade an uneducated, white, Afrikaans-speaking prison guard about the virtue of his cause, then he could definitely make inroads with the broader white electorate. He always believed that if you took the time to explain things to people in their own language, they would understand. By the late 1970s and early 1980s, Robben Island grew relatively less restrictive. Conditions on the inside changed because of what was happening on the outside. The global anti-apartheid movement was strengthening. After the brutal murder of black activist Steve Biko in 1977 by South African police, the UN imposed an embargo on all arms sales to South Africa. Andrew Young, the U.S. ambassador to the UN, called South Africa's white government illegitimate. At the same time, the ANC's guerrilla warfare within South Africa had become more effective with bombings at oil installations and even shopping centers. Then, in March 1982, Mandela's life was upended. 
my wife went to her home here in the Transkei from Johannesburg. And not very far from here, they were involved in an accident. The car capsized and she was taken to hospital. And attorney Dalla Omar came to see me that afternoon to give me a report about her and the type of injuries that she had suffered. So I was disturbed. And in the afternoon, I returned to my cell. Winnie was okay, but he couldn't be with her. They locked us up, and shortly thereafter, the commanding officer, and uh, together with a group of other prison officials, they opened my door. Mandela, I want you to pack. Why? No, we're transferring to, to Polsmo. Why? No, that's the instruction from the head office. And uh, they also opened the door of Walter Sisulu, Raymond Msaba, and Andrew Mlangeni, the four of us. While he processed the news about his wife, he was told that after 18 years on Robben Island, he was being transferred to the mainland. It took him only a few minutes to pack all of his worldly possessions. He had been on Robben Island for almost two decades and didn't have time to say goodbye to anyone. In a few minutes, Mandela and three of his closest colleagues, Walter Sisulu, Raymond Mthlaba, Andrew Mlangeni, were on a boat headed to Cape Town. After docking, they were put in a van for what was about an hour's drive. It was in the evening. We didn't know what place it was. And uh, we asked, now what place is this? They said this is Polsmoor. Polsmoor Prison was a complex that housed 6,000 common law prisoners as in not political prisoners like Mandela. It was located in a pretty residential area of Cape Town. They were taken to the top floor of the prison into a large room with four beds. It had sheets and towels and access to a roof. We're put in a general cell, a big cell, the four of us. We liked it, you see, because it had enough room for exercises, had showers inside. And uh, we had beds, proper beds, and the diet was uh, fairly good. I visited the place. It was spacious and open, kind of like a loft apartment. The prison itself, however, was big, grim, and gray. But they had more space and more freedom. The living conditions were better than Robben Island, where he could barely fit inside his cell. The four ANC leaders were housed on the third floor by themselves. But when I was talking to Mandela, I kept getting mixed up about what floor they were on. No, 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 no. it was on the third floor. Third floor, just give me your notebook, okay? Okay. I'm going to have an art collection. Uh, <laughs> now, this was our cell. Then this area was empty, mm-hmm. except here. There are buildings here. Now, this whole area was empty, Mm -hmm. and the garden was here. It stretched from here right down. They had access to the roof, and that's where Mandela started his beloved vegetable garden. Yes, that's true. We're on the third floor, and uh, very much restricted. But uh, that is where I started a big garden, much bigger than the one in Robben Island. Right, the one with the drums. Yes, drums. drums. Mm 
And uh, so I was really occupied the whole day because I liked my gardening and it was doing very well. And um, well, I found this very, very useful indeed because I heard at one time uh, close uh, to 900 plants. The drums were oil drums that had been cut in half and filled with soil so that they became giant pots. He grew tomatoes, spinach, and strawberries, and the prisoners and the guards used the fruits and vegetables to supplement their own meals. Mandela loved that garden and found refuge in it. In 1985, Mandela was taken to a hospital in Cape Town for prostate surgery. When he returned to Polesmoor, he was placed in a large cell by himself on the ground floor. Mandela wasn't sure why. He knew it would be lonelier. But where others see obstacles, he saw opportunity. I immediately realized that I could make use of the opportunity to start discussions with the government. But first, he wanted to consult with his fellow ANC prisoners. I asked to see my colleagues, and I called the four. Mandela believed it was time to start talks with the government. There was international pressure on their side, but he was under no illusions that the ANC's military wing would topple the South African government. He made that argument to his colleagues. They weren't happy about it. They wanted to continue the armed struggle against the government. Mandela suggested the time for that was ending. This was a momentous change. For the more than 20 years Mandela had been in prison, the ANC had been resolute about not negotiating with the government. To most in the ANC, initiating negotiations with the government seemed like giving in. Publicly, he still rebuffed the government's offers. In 1985, President Bota offered to release Mandela if he renounced violence. Winnie and his daughter Zinzi journeyed to Polesmoor to get his reply. Here is the last sentences of what he wrote and which Zinzi read to an enormous crowd at Jabalani Stadium in Soweto. Only free men can negotiate. I cannot and will not give any undertaking at a time when I and you, the people, are not free. Your freedom and mine cannot be separated. I will return. I will return. Yet inside Poles Moore, Mandela secretly started the process of negotiation. There was some tendency on the part of some officials, which is a normal tactic, you see, of divide and rule, of saying, well, we can release you, provided you undertake not to resume violence. We can release you if you leave South Africa and go back to the Transcar, where you come from. You are working with wrong people. It would be easy to settle with you. The South African government always had conditions for talks, like renouncing violence, like him returning to the trans guy. And the ANC had always refused. But in 1986, Mandela thought it was time to change the strategy. The circumstances had changed. It wasn't so much a moral decision for Mandela. It was a chess move. For him, negotiating or not negotiating was a tactic, not a principle. His decision ultimately changed the course of history. In 1986, the prison guards prepared Mandela for a visit from an international task force investigating apartheid. There were changes because they came to me 
a few days before the arrival of the eminent persons group, the commanding officer. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, we don't want you to go and see those people in your prison outfit. We want to go and buy your suit, a complete outfit, underwear, shirt, a suit, a belt, shoes, socks, so you can see them on, uh, equal, on an equal footing. And they sent a tailor to come and take my measurements. And they went and bought those items. Mandela was visited by the Eminent Persons Group, an entity created by the Commonwealth nations to investigate apartheid. After that visit, he wrote a letter to the commissioner of prisons. And I said, look, I want to see the Minister of Justice. I want uh, to raise the whole question of talks between the ANC and the government. Then he says, well, uh, as you know, I'm not a politician. I can't discuss such issues. But fortunately, the minister is here, also in Cape Town. And uh, I'll phone and find out. So he phoned him and told him about the request. Then the commissioner, the minister of justice, Mr. Kobe Kovitsia, said, bring him along. So we went on to the city. I never even went back to jail. Hmm. Same day? Same day. Well, same moment. Same moment. I never even went back to jail. Hmm. I went down to see him. I spent about three hours with him. I was very struck by his courtesy, sophistication, and he asked a very relevant questions, very intelligent questions. Now, I was saying to him, I want to see Peter W. Porter, who was then the state president. And so it began, negotiations with the government, all at Mandela's initiative, only at Mandela's initiative. The government put together a group to talk to Mandela. In addition to Kobe Kutsia, it included the head of intelligence as well as the head of prisons. Mandela met with them and then wrote a private memo to P.W. Bota, the president of South Africa. It's hard to exaggerate how risky all of this was for Mandela. A political prisoner who held no official position in his own party, whom no one had seen in two decades, yet who had become the international face of the organization, on his own overruled a long-established ANC policy to not negotiate with the government. How could anyone know or not know if he had surrendered? And he told no one about it, not even his closest colleagues in prison. The fact that he was now living by himself on a different floor from his colleagues enabled these secret negotiations. Yes, he had told them that he thought the time had come to begin negotiations. But he did not tell them he had begun them. When others in the ANC did eventually learn about what Mandela was doing, there were those who thought the old man had capitulated, that he had been broken, that he was surrendering to the apartheid government. Even some of his colleagues from Robben Island thought this. But Mandela was playing the long game. When Mandela was sentenced to life in prison, the South African regime thought he would become an invisible man. In fact, his fame grew while he was behind bars. In 1980, the Johannesburg Sunday Post launched a free Mandela campaign. The city of Glasgow awarded him its Medal of Freedom and later renamed St. George's Place in the heart of the city, Nelson Mandela Place. In 1981, thousands of mayors from cities around the world declared him a free man of their city. 
Music groups wrote songs about him. Activists around the world held protests and rallies. Nelson Mandela, you and other political leaders are in prison and the people are not free. While the people are oppressed, South Africa will remain in the grip of an escalating cycle of frustration, anger and violence. Comrades, welcome to Hyde Park and to the Free Nelson Mandela Rally. Nelson Mandela now. What do we want? Thank you. Thank you. His face was pictured on t-shirts and posters, and his story was featured in documentaries. By 1985, Mandela wasn't just the symbol of the fight against apartheid. He was a global icon of freedom itself. Joe Biden, then Senator Biden, before he became president, was a passionate voice against apartheid. He called the apartheid government repulsive. Damn it, we have favorites in South Africa. The favorites in South Africa are the people who are being repressed by that ugly white regime. International pressure continued to build against South Africa. The country faced economic and cultural sanctions from other nations, from private institutions, and from global corporations. Within South Africa, it became clear that the apartheid economy just couldn't be competitive against modern economies. It also became clear that anyone associated with South Africa would become a pariah on the global stage, in culture, in sports, in politics, in business. Behind the scenes, Mandela kept up his secret talks with the government. After many months of meetings with military, intelligence, and prison officials, it was time to meet with the man they called the Great Crocodile. P.W. Bota, the president of South Africa. Mandela, as always, wanted to look the part. Then uh, I asked the uh, prison authority to go and buy me a suit and their shoes and so on and were shirt, ties, and I dressed him. Now, they had told me that by half past five in the morning, I must be ready. So, uh, Major Marais, M-A-R-A-I-S, Major Marais, came very early in the morning, found me dressed, and he looked at me from top uh, down to my feet. And he says, no, Mandela, you're not well dressed. And he untied the tie and tied it himself. And uh, he also, retied my shoelaces and stepped back and looked at me and he says, no, now you're better. Then at a certain time, we drove to Dane Hayes, where the offices of uh, the state president were. Now, you know the spelling of Dane Hayes, eh? Dane Hayes, the president's house. T-U-Y-N-H-U. Y.S. That's Afrikaans for garden house. It's the South African White House. By the way, in case you missed it, that's the commander of Mandela's prison, a white South African major, getting on his knees to tie Mandela's shoes. And uh, I was tense because I had been told such a lot that was negative about Mr. Peter Mubos that I was prepared for a fight. So, as I ended, feeling very tense, 
president, I ended up in a door like that one. Mm-hmm. And the president came from a door like this. We just came at the same time. He was apparently timing me. He was full of smiles and uh, with his head out. We shook hands, fought our opportunity, and we sat down. It was one of the most pleasant interviews I've had. Yes, it was pleasant and cordial. But let's mention that one of the enduring criticisms of Mandela is that he was too willing to see the good in people, too easily charmed, too easily won over by civility. In my interview with his longtime colleague Ahmed Kathrada, who also helped on Long Walk to Freedom, Kathrada said if Mandela had one flaw, it was that he was too trusting. We made a joint declaration. Uh, committing ourselves to the promotion of peace in the country. And, uh, but he was uh, very charming, and uh, I enjoyed uh, the meeting very much. Mandela was an expert flatterer, but he was also easily flattered. He was a sucker for courtesy. Perhaps at the time we wrote his book, Mandela had some political purpose in depicting Bota so positively, but I doubt it. He seemed charmed all over again when he was telling me the story. The talks started with President Bota, but it would be another four years before Mandela's release under Bota's successor, F.W. de Klerk. When he became the state president, I was keen to see him. And I met him, raised the question of a meeting between the ANC and the government. He's talking about de Klerk there. He asked for a meeting in 1989. While he was charmed by Bota, Mandela saw something different in de Klerk. He was of a different generation, more modern, less ideological. Mandela knew that if a new dispensation were to be found, it would be worked out with de Klerk. From his speeches, I noticed that uh, he was a different man and that he was bringing a new policy. He was continuing the policy of Peter W. Botha. But uh, what made me, me go and see him, apart from making his acquaintance and knowing what his political views firsthand, <clears throat> not through the press. Mandela's relationship with de Klerk was a complicated one. We talked about it many times. Sometimes he would praise him, as he did here. Sometimes he was critical. He was one of only two people I ever heard Mandela harshly criticize. The other was Gacha Butelezi. We'll get to Butelezi later. First, de Klerk. So the first meeting with him was, was when exactly? On the 13th of December. 1989. I was hammering to him the importance of a meeting between the ANC and the government to resolve the issues of the country and the question of the unbanning of the ANC. Because um, uh, I had discussed with Kobe Kutsia the question of my release. And I say, you can release me, but I'll do exactly what you arrested me for. Because uh, if you don't unban my organization, I'll go there and do the work, which I, and continue the work which I was doing before you arrested me. This was uh, the essence of our discussion. Mm -hmm. And then, um, obviously, they agreed. Listening to him here, you get a sense of what it's like negotiating with Nelson Mandela. 
He is passionate but controlled. He is knowledgeable but never pedantic. He is clear, direct, unvarnished. He doesn't make threats. He simply tells you what he's going to do. Well, yes. And the last time, of course, he called me to tell me that I'm released, I'm being released. That is on the 9th of February, that meeting on the 9th of February. And that's when he told you you were being released? Yes. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. For millions of people around the world, Mandela's release meant the end of something. And it was a beautiful and inspiring moment. His first public appearance in nearly three decades. 72 years old. Walking strongly, step by step, further into freedom. For him, though, it was the beginning of what was in many ways his greatest struggle. And then was that the first night that you spent at home in... Uh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it feel to be back at home? Well, um, it uh, was uh, an emotive experience mm-hmm. to be back home and uh, to enter the bedroom in which I had lived uh, since uh, March 1947. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was the feeling of satisfaction of being able to resume a normal life and uh, to join the family and uh, to be able to pick up the old threads and uh, to try and adjust enough from uh, an area which, from a place, a spot in the universe, which uh, I regarded as my sweet home and um, where I could sit down and think about the problems of the country. I think Mandela here was trying to sound the way he thinks an ordinary man would sound, trying to gin up a little emotion for his American interviewer and his American publisher. So many times I tried to put myself in his shoes. What would it feel like to come out of prison after 27 years? But I don't think he had an ounce of sentimentality about his release. And I don't think he had any real feeling of satisfaction about getting out. His greatest challenge was just beginning. The idea that he would resume a normal life in his home sweet home was, well, laughable. And he knew it. The truth is, his private life ended when he walked out of prison. Now he had to try to pull off a free and fair election in a country that had never had one. And he had to stop his country from descending into a bloody civil war. Mandela was out of jail, but his problems were just beginning. The South African police resorted to shotguns in the Johannesburg township of Kahiso today, trying to separate supporters of the ANC and the Zulu group in Qatar. It was the 11th day of fighting, and with more than 500 dead... 